Welcome to the Loop Podcast, the podcast that deep dives what works today when it comes to marketing to the modern buyer. I'm your host, John Beck, Global Head of Paid at Cognizim, and I'm delighted to be joined by my guest, Silvio Perez, founder of Ad Conversion. Hey, Silvio, how are you doing? Hey, John Burke, thank you so much for having me. I'm so pumped to be here. Thank you for coming, Silvio, and I'm so pumped for you to be here. Like, I have so many questions for you, and I just actually saw your LinkedIn post today about Captera, about managing more than $1 million on Captera. Firstly, did it work? Like, does Captera work? Yeah, it was really successful. It's a really great channel at scaling high intent hand raisers. So if if you're working in a known category, those are usually the ones that work best with Captera. So known category, meaning something that's already an existing thing that people know to search for. Very much like Google search, they need to mm-hmm. go to these review sites, right? They need to already know that they want to go to a review site and try to find software. So if you're working in an existing category, it's really powerful. If you're working in a very niche category where people don't really know about it yet. It's like an emerging thing, then it might not work so well. You can try bidding on like an existing category and kind of siphon off some traffic that way. But given the average cost per click price on Captera, it can sometimes work, sometimes not. Yeah, because I remember testing it and especially comparing the US and UK and other regions, like the uh, CPCs were drastically different. Like in the US, uh, they were much expensive, but also like the conversion rate from the US was much better than what we were having uh, in EMA. Uh, have you noticed something like that? And also, have you noticed some uh, differences in conversions or uh, use cases by location on Captera? Yes, uh, biggest biggest difference is price, number one. Uh, in terms of conversion rates, we didn't see, this is where it's like a it depends situation, but in the, the mm-hmm. one client that I'm thinking about that I, with the million dollars, uh, it was pretty consistent. We actually had uh, UK and Australia like outperform US for us. It was weird, wow. like the conversion rates were actually higher. Um, but in terms of cost, absolutely dramatically big different cost um, from region to region. And then also too, just from spots, you know, like bidding on the first spot of Captera, it's mm-hmm. insane how much more expensive it is. And you can get massive cost per click breaks by just doing strategic position bidding. Yeah, actually, like, uh, I don't think there's any difference between bidding to a fourth place or sixth place. Like, I don't see any reasoning behind to pay like $2 more for the fourth position. It does matter in the sense of volume. So I actually, I like micro split tested this to like really, because I was, please explain. Please I was, do. I was bidding in a ridiculous category, like uh, the top spot. It was crazy. I was with that client for a couple of years. And when I first started advertising on Captera with them, it cost us like $25 for the top spot. By the time I stopped working with them, it was like 76. Holy. It was insane. Uh, I always say Captera is very much a like a bidding bloodbath because they don't take quality score into account. Quality mm-hmm. score is something that, this was years ago, that they said that was in the beta program and it's still not here. So I don't know if they're just saying that. I, I hope they, they actually roll it out to all their categories. But for those that don't, that don't know, the reason why quality score is significant is because by having quality score, then it's no longer just your bid that determines if you're on the top position or not. And right now it's all about your bid. Yeah, actually, this is a great thing. Like I actually haven't even thought about that. Having a quality score in Captera would be great. And do you think would it be similar like Google? It will be about like ad experience, landing page experience, etc. I think it would be a combination of because it's not so much ad experience in Captera in the sense of like you can write copy. I would think it would be more so a factor of your landing page experience, but more so than that, your actual listing itself. Do you have a lot of reviews on your listing? Do you have updated product images? Uh, how well maintained is that listing? And that also helps Captera as well because their information is more up to date. So it's like this beautiful flywheel of person finds more valuable information, advertisers reward with lower costs, and everybody's happy. Fair, fair. And uh, I also know that you've been testing in a lot of different non-traditional platforms uh, like Twitter and TikTok. And I will actually come TikTok later, but uh, like your Twitter ads. And I know that you love Twitter. Uh, how would a uh, how would a B2B company could uh, do Twitter ads? Yeah, so much to talk about. I actually didn't answer your question, though, about the strategic uh, bidding on the positions. 
so oh, yeah, well, with that. like the second spot to the, uh, the sixth spot. So what I found from testing was once you go past the fourth spot, the volume does start to drop off dramatically. Uh, so we were we were testing like uh, second spot and then just kind of keeping an eye on like what's our demo volume look like. We were a product led and sales led company. So mm -hmm. taking a look at that and then we did realize once we start to get past that fourth spot, the volume really did start to drop off. Uh, so it kind of depends at the end of the day, like, what are you trying to go for? If you're trying to optimize for the greatest return and efficiency, then for sure bidding on the lower spots is, is well worth it. But it's always that balance between like efficiency and scale, you know what I mean? That we're always dancing between. Yeah, like to be fair, okay, for me, it does make sense to be in the first, second or third position. But honestly, like if you didn't tell me that, I would be like, okay, fourth, fifth, sixth, like wouldn't matter. <laughs> yeah, I can't prove it, but I have this theory that... <laughs> People go to Captera and they just click the first thing almost out of like impulse, you know, and then they bounce really quick and then they go to the second spot, third spot, fourth <laughs> spot. So it's like, it's like, yeah, you get a lot of clicks, but you might be not getting the like, and people, if they click on your position and you're like on the fourth spot, you know, they're more serious, right? Because they're actually scrolling through the page. This does make a lot of sense. I mean, this does make a lot of sense. And actually, uh, in one of the companies that I used to work for, uh, we beat for the first position in some irrelevant countries. Like, I don't know, the main market was the UK, but we did target Ireland because uh, the bidding there was like $1. And okay, we were at the top. We were getting a lot of clicks, but no one was converting. And now it makes completely sense. Yeah, it is impossible. Like, they just click. I wish we could see like session recordings on Captera, like how people use it, you know what I mean? Like when they're going on the category page and they're browsing through i highly doubt we'll ever get to see that but <laughs> i mean yeah like i'm also thinking about my own behavior like i do click to the first thing but i most of the time bounce yeah it's like impulse i don't know uh <laughs> but as far as how do companies get started b2b companies get started on twitter ads so much to unpack i think the easiest way to get started in most social channels is retargeting so first you know, just like any platform, install the pixel, start building a retargeting mm -hmm. audience. Um, but if you're serious about investing in Twitter, the first thing I recommend you do outside of just install the pixel, start building your retargeting audience is explore the, the targeting options available to you. So Twitter is, if I had to choose a similar channel, I would say they're closer to Facebook in terms of their options available, but they have some things that are unique to Twitter. So just take a look at, you know, create like a draft campaign and start playing through the targeting options just to see like, is it possible for you to get in front of your ICP, right? And then taking a step back, pull your customers and, and kind of get a sense of like, are they actively on Twitter or not? Because if they're not, then obviously it doesn't even make mm -hmm. sense to get started. So win a winnable fight and, and make sure that they're there. The second thing I would do is after you look through the targeting options is just run a pilot campaign. You can just spend, you know, minimum a hundred bucks and really all you're looking for with this, this pilot campaign is to get an understanding of what your costs look like. So I, I'll give you the spoiler alert. It's really freaking cheap, <laughs> which is why I love Twitter. It's dirt cheap. Like it was, it's always been cheap, but like just and when I say cheap, I'm talking CPMs under $5 cheap. Um, I can't even imagine. Like it's I like ridiculous. Even it's like free impressions. It might as well be, you know, it's like fractions <laughs> of a penny. Um, and it was always cheap, but like now, since Elon Musk took over, a lot of big advertisers pulled their budget and pulled their spend. So now it's like, a, it's not dramatic, but it's like cheaper, which I didn't think was possible, uh, but there you go. So <laughs> I think, you know, where, where there's chaos, there's also opportunity. So I wouldn't let that hold you back if you're worried about more so like the, you know, the perception, et cetera. Twitter is still very much alive and well. People are using Twitter every day. And if your audience is there and you can help them, I think it's almost like a moral obligation to make sure that you're showing up in as many places as you can. So once you run that pilot campaign, just you know push $100 on it. All you really want to see is your CPC, CPMs, just to get a sense if it makes sense for you. Uh, and then from there, you can start to actually flesh out a real campaign. Now with Twitter, it's hard to drive conversion. It's more of an awareness-based mm -hmm. channel uh, in general, but you can drive conversions through retargeting primarily. So one of the really cool things about Twitter is you can actually retarget people based on impression and not engagement, which is ridiculous. So most platforms, there's an engagement component in the sense of like, I have to click your ad and now I, I qualify to be in your retargeting pool. 
with Twitter, with Twitter ads, you can actually retarget if people just viewed your ad, like if they were served an impression. I didn't know that. Like last year, when LinkedIn launched this feature, I was like, "Oh my god, how did they do it?" But apparently, Twitter has already been doing that. Yeah, and it's it's on another level because it's you don't even need them to engage. Like if they just serve the impression, the downside is they could be a bad fit. Now you're just building more of a like a crappy retargeting pool. But the ability to build a retargeting audience based on like that in-platform engagement is pretty ridiculous on Twitter. So that is a really cool thing about it. And if you have video content, video view campaigns are really powerful and you can push that and then retarget individuals. So the ability to build an audience and then retarget is unparalleled on Twitter. And then it just becomes this flywheel of, uh, of nurturing those audiences with additional content and then offers. And can you create a retargeting audience based on the video consumption like you do on Twitter, like 50% view, uh, 75% view of the video? I have to double check. Uh, I'm pretty sure you can, but I'm, I don't think it's as intuitive. Um, but yeah, it's it's ridiculous. You can see that though. You can see com- consumption in Twitter ads, uh, but it's like, it's, it's, the- it's kind of... Twitter, I guess the bad thing about Twitter is like the UI isn't as nice. Yeah, like it feels like it seems so basic. And like up until you told all of this stuff, I didn't even know that this existed. Like for me, Twitter has always been like so basic, like Reddit. Uh, however, yeah, like, okay, after this podcast, I'm definitely going on Twitter. It's, you know, like Twitter, Twitter is like, they're very basic in some regards, but then they're also advanced in others. So for example, like when it comes to conversions, they have the ability to do uh, API based conversions, which is wild, right? But like then other things that are like more simple, like video view retargeting, it's like, it's not there. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, so I don't know who's like prioritizing the rollouts on the on the Twitter ads team. But it is a definitely a if you're like, especially if you like you I know for Cognizant, right, like marketers, salespeople, it's definitely a worthwhile channel to test. Uh, in terms of prospecting audiences, if you are serious about Twitter and you want to try it out, I highly recommend trying follower lookalike campaigns out. So if you know certain celebrities in your space that have good followings on Twitter, you can target people that look similar to their followers. And I actually found a lot of success with that when I ran my initial Twitter ads experiment. And just using follower lookalike targeting, I was able to get in front of people like at Atlassian, um, I think I had another person from Gong that opted in. So it was like some serious companies, Amazing. you know, uh, and my, I was promoting my newsletter and like my average cost per opt-in was like around five to $7, which is epic. I mean, I don't think this episode should be free. Like the, uh, suggestions, the recommendations that you are giving are gold. <laughs> Appreciate it. And, and you know, like one last thing on Twitter is they also have the ability to support customer lists. So you can upload email addresses. So if you have known contacts, try uploading it to Twitter. The downside with Twitter is the match rates are really bad. Um, one, uh, Hobbit, Google level bet or even worse? Uh, it's tough. I, I would say it's on par. Like they're, they're, <laughs> they're on par. Like uh, it might be a little worse, honestly, because at least Google oh matches like Google accounts. But one of the things that you can do and this is probably where people can, you can charge for this is <laughs> like one of the things you can do if you can go through the effort of doing it, because you can look up emails in Twitter to find people, right? If you have their emails, mm-hmm. if you can put together a list and like find those people's, those, their Twitter handles, and then you, you create your custom audience based on the Twitter handles and not the emails, the match rate is dramatically better. This is gold. This is gold. So like Cognizm, I know you guys are a data data source, you know, if you have the ability to sell that, you know, and it's all GDPR compliant because it's it's based on yeah, Twitter, you know. Because like I'm giving you product I need to check maybe we I mean I think we actually provide that data. I'm going to test it by myself. Oh uh, dude, that's and... so sick. If you do, that would be so yeah. helpful. Like that's like a need for like me. I'm like, man, I wish I could have like a data source that can sell me Twitter handles. And uh, you know what? I'm going to give it for free to you. Oh, I appreciate you. <laughs> Uh, but I actually did use Cognizm uh, for Google customer list match and like since now, okay, we don't have any credit limits. We are free. The tool is ours. I basically exported 1 million contacts. And I'm like, okay, 
uh, the match rate should be good. And even like with 1 million, the match rate was like 5%. And I was like, okay, this person, this 5% doesn't mean anything. Like, I don't want to be reaching 50,000 people only. Mm -hmm. It's rough. It's so rough. Um, And this is where too, you know, I don't want to go on a rant here, but uh, as B2B marketers, we're very, you know, we're very trapped by our targeting. You know, obviously targeting is extremely important, but when you're going to start to scale and if you want to scale outside of safe platforms like LinkedIn, right? Or if you're using a third-party tool like Cognizant, then you can do Facebook, et cetera. But when you're serious and you want to go outside of the known primary channels, like you're going to have to lean on like all these nuanced things that we're talking about, like follower lookalikes or even going after a broader audience, but really making sure that you have strong creative that speaks to your ideal customer. Like I always think the example I always use is like, I imagine Claude Hopkins who invented the coupon, you know, back in the 1800s, him sitting at a desk and sending out all his coupons and then counting the coupons to understand how his campaign performs. Like, how did they get in front of their ICP way back when they're messaging in their ad? And I think that's kind of like the art part of marketing, especially today, that's kind of lost is we're so focused on the technical piece that we forget at the end of the day, like your message, your creative, your offer will play a massive role in being able to attract the right people. You're so right. Uh, you're so right. Like I actually uh, saw that uh, LinkedIn post of yours again a couple of days ago about that landing page and about what you did. Like it was incredible. And when I first checked the actual, the original one, I didn't understand anything. But then uh, the simplicity, like I to fair, don't remember. So I cannot tell it to the, uh, in the podcast. It was, uh, it was amazing. The original one was like the cure for your organizational amnesia. And then we, which, and then he had like supporting text to like, kind of give some context, but you should always assume nobody's going to read anything except that H1. And Mm -hmm. we changed it from the cure for your organizational amnesia to we help enterprises find critical documents in less than 60 seconds. And amazing. Like I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. One of the, uh, one of the things that I've been telling a lot of customers lately, and I've kind of been really gung ho about is, you know, Targeting is becoming a commodity, right? Like it's becoming mm-hmm. more table stakes. Uh, truly the the three biggest levers for growth on paid media today is your experience. So where are you driving people to? How does that look? Your landing page, your messaging, et cetera. Your offer, what are you promoting? What are you providing? I think in the B2B world, we're very complacent with the offers that we have. We default to what is known, demo request, free trial. But in yeah. this weird climate that we're in right now, I'm finding that, you know, regardless of how awesome your tool is, people are not going to get a demo. They're not financially ready for that, right? They don't have the means. Mm-hmm. So can we be creative as marketers and create new offers like assessments or audits that can like, you know, play a temporary role to be able to add value to the prospect, start a conversation so that we can open up a deal in the future. So your experience, your offer, and then finally is your creative itself right? Like, how are you presenting yourself to the world? And that gets really missed often because creative is an afterthought and it's not a priority. Yeah, definitely. And actually, uh, you said something uh, that was really interesting for me. Like, uh, yeah, people in most of times don't realize that uh, what they are saying because they are in the product, like they don't understand the customer side. And now uh, you have a bunch of clients that you are working with. Uh, when you take over a new client, like what are the most common mistakes that you are seeing? Number one is no visibility. They don't have the proper reporting and dashboards in place and tracking. So one of my favorite views is a blended view. So you can see mm-hmm. paid and organic, and that's really important if you're ever going to move out of the capture stage and start to do things more top of funnel. So they don't have that. They they're, don't really have good tracking in place. So like just the plumbing, right? The infrastructure from the paid side is is not there. They don't have naming conventions. Their campaign structures, right? Like they're lumping everything together. I always say the best advertisers think like investors and they execute like scientists. And the only way that you're going to understand what's working is by segmenting things so you can understand the impact on performance. So I would say a lot of it is on an, on an infrastructure level. They just don't have right. And unfortunate, it's like that's what most people get wrong. And that's also the thing that prevents them from truly scaling because they're always having to go back and kind of deal with all this debt. Yeah. You know, like for 
a product analogy like the tech debt, you know what I mean? They have all this bad mm -hmm. code that they have to go back and rewrite. <laughs> it's the same thing from a paid perspective, except it's like, you don't have a right campaign segmentation. You don't have tracking, et cetera. So it's like, you're trying to go faster, but you can't because all this eventually is going to catch up to you. I'd say that's probably the number one. Uh, and then from there, it's just, uh, they don't have workflows in place. You know, I think people don't realize like all the operational processes along with paid ads. Like just a simple example is, um, creative feedback, right? That's like so missed is how are we reporting on creative? What's the, you know, how, like when we have a new, like a new content piece, what's our sprint? Like how long are we going to let it run for? I always say, I have this concept I call like, you have to set your rules of testing engagement. So just like, you know, extreme example, when you go into war, like there's rules of engagement of like how you conduct war. It's like in a much smaller micro scale of like how you make decisions in your ad account of do I pause this ad? Do I let it keep running? You should have your rules of testing engagement. So it's as simple as like, if the ad spends two to three X, my break even cost per lead pause, right? Like simple things like that, that really help you go a long way. Yeah, actually, this was uh, one of our biggest problems, like especially when the team was growing. Okay, we, we kept hiring more people and I was trying to show them what uh, we have been doing. But uh, there was no proper rules of engagement. And I was like, okay, I do this and because of this, like I am the documentation here. Uh, and like at some point, I realized that they are not getting it. And every time I had to give more feedback, then I was like, okay, you know what? This is a very simple thing, but I'm going to try. So I have written a documentation like 101. How do you audit the campaign? How do you decide when to stop? The team efficiency has grown like uh, significantly. Like I don't give any feedback at all now. They are working like machines. And it was so simple, just a 101 documentation. It's, it's so important. Like my... When I was at Metadata and I built the performance marketing team, which is basically like the internal agency, my goal was always to fire myself. And the <laughs> only way you're ever going to fire yourself is by having good documentation and processes. I Not to go on a too much of a tangent, but like I built this boot camp is what I called it. And it was like a four-week onboarding boot camp where we would like, it had like four different criteria. It was like product expertise, B2B industry knowledge, channel expertise. And then we would like quiz them on all their different uh, knowledge points of each thing. Uh, and then eventually I trained my managers underneath me on how to run new, uh, <laughs> new hires through that. And then they would train them. And then we also had like SOPs around, you know, like doing a monthly recap on performance, how to send emails to clients, like all these little things are, um, we called it your optimization power hour. So like every, we had one hour scheduled every day on the calendar to, spend time looking at the accounts, pacing, right? Performance trends, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Like all those little things that it goes such a long way because oftentimes people are not looking at their ad accounts frequently enough. Things, you know, one day becomes two, becomes three. Eventually you miss it and then it's like a huge problem. Yeah, I think this is one of the most crucial things. Like people are sitting and forgetting. Uh, but like one thing I think no one should be doing in, when it comes to paid media, it is set and forget. Yeah, a hundred percent. It's just at that point, you're basically asking to lose money, you know, honestly. Yeah. Like, and actually, uh, when you said metadata, like I know that like everyone knows that, uh, metadata has been, uh, one of the most successful companies when it comes to gift cards and like, it, I think it really worked for Metadata because the value prop was amazing. Like the product was amazing and uh, there was no competitor. But uh, like, let's don't think about Metadata. Think about a proper normal company uh, that, that has a normal product uh, in a competitive landscape. Do you think uh, gift card as would work for a normal, very normal B2B company? Yes, the short answer is yes, just because I've, I've ran it with a lot of other companies in different spaces. The, the way I think about it, though, is, is number one is value exchange, right? So if what you're asking, right, the reason that the incentive is helpful is because it makes the value exchange more in your favor, right? Uh, mm -hmm. When you're just asking somebody to get on a call with sales, outside of the fact that if they have like the need and the urgency and your product actually solves a real problem, then there's nothing really there. So the the what we realized with the incentive is like we can get people a little bit earlier on. Maybe they don't have the urgency, 
but it starts a conversation and we have a good nurture follow-up process. The AE can start to develop a relationship with that person. So they're not going to necessarily close right away, which is sometimes the trap with conversation ads is like you generate a lot of pipeline, but you don't get revenue. Um, and that's often why you'll see that. So it can work, but the main thing is just take into consideration on like who you're going after. If you're trying to scale demo requests on a cold audience that doesn't have brand affinity, that's where an incentive could be helpful because it can help push the scaling wall that you've hit by just, you know, hitting people up that are like known to you, right? Or maximizing search. So it's another way for you to scale an unscalable offer essentially, but it is very much a, it can, it can also go backfire. You know what I mean? This is where you have to test. So like, for example, making sure if you're using conversation ads, making sure that you have your form or your landing page offer pop up on the second message versus the first. So then you can add in qualifying text, further qualify the person. Um, if you're using lead gen forms, making sure that you're setting up custom questions and then asking them certain questions that are very important. Like at Metadata, it was, do you use Salesforce or HubSpot as a CRM? Are you spending more than 20K a month in ad spend? So they had to go through all this to try to improve the quality, you know? Yeah, it makes completely sense. Uh, because like I have been targeted a lot of gift card campaigns and I'm not going to lie, like I got a lot of uh, Amazon gift vouchers. I'm <laughs> not uh, ashamed of that. <laughs> but like uh, the only problem I had with Metadata, like I was in the pipeline of Metadata uh, before the gift cards like uh, i never purchased anything uh, with the gift cards but if i was able to if i got targeted by the gift card it probably i would get metadata uh, and i'm actually <laughs> a bit uh yeah i'm a bit angry because i got to met whole product uh, without having any gift cards oh you gotta you gotta let them know <laughs> <laughs> sure i'm sure if you would sign they'll, they'll send you a whole bunch of gift cards <laughs> And uh, we were talking. You were talking about uh, the mistakes uh, when you take over a new client, and yeah, reporting was one of them. Now that uh, we are having GA four, uh, what do you think about GA four? What are your thoughts? I think it's a time bomb, and a lot of people don't realize it. <laughs> I don't. Thank you. People don't realize that the default is two months in terms of like uh, retaining. So backtrack. Uh, GA four is the replacement for Universal Analytics. And with GA4, everything is event-based. It's like a, a new model. And they only store up to two months at default of your event data, and then up to 14 months max of your event data. So the reason I say it's a time bomb is because a lot of people are going to lose their data in 14 months, and they don't realize it. Now, they do have an option so that it resets based on user activity, but it's kind of a gamble. You know what I mean? Like you're, you're kind of trusting that every user is going to reset and not likely. Uh, so you are going to lose data. There's going to be spillover. So if you are serious about using GA4 and you want to use it, you're going to like by default have to associate it with some sort of warehouse to store your event data. So the the solve that they try to do is like to do a BigQuery integration. So you can import all your GA4 data into BigQuery. But that's the first thing I want to call out because a lot of people I talk to are using GA4 right now. And I'm like, oh, what are you doing about the 14 month expiration? And they're like, what do you mean? 14 months? <laughs> uh, and it's a I mean, I said thing. thank you because when I kept saying that people think I'm crazy, people think I am bullshitting. Thank you. Uh, like nobody you know, you got, go, go in your right now, like pause this recording, go, in, go into Google Analytics, go to the admin section, go to data retention and you'll see it right there. It's 100% true. <laughs> And uh, on the attribution part, uh, now we know that, okay, uh, GA4 won't be our solution. Uh, GA uh, is not uh, useful anymore. And uh, like the traditional approach is not working. We cannot rely on one, two, maybe even three touch points. Like how do you tackle the attribution problem? This is where you're going to need, so it depends on the need of the company, right? Like B2B, or let's just assume you're, you're talking account-based. This is where you're going to use, you're going to have to use a third-party tool that but even those third-party tools, they can't resolve all the accounts on your website. There's just limitations. So, but use what you can. I mean, there's like Hockey Stack. I know is is rolling out right the the intent with companies on your site, etc. So there's different attribution tools like that that you can use, um, and you can use that as like one touch point, right, to get a better understanding of the account journey. I mean, it just kind of is what it is right now. And the current state is like you have to use third-party tech. Like, there's no real like free solution yet. Um, with GA4, 
there are ways to like stitch things together. If you can like, for example, if you can store the data into uh, a warehouse and then you can like, like you can almost make GA4 more advanced. If you're really good with like data pipelines and whatnot, you can also push ad cost data into GA4, which is really cool. Um, but for most folks that are not technical, they don't have the resources. It's, it's a huge lift for what you're getting back. Uh, cause even like the baseline reporting in GA4 is kind of very clunky and it is what it is. You can set up custom collections to like personalize your GA4 experience and make it more unique. Like for example, I set up one for content performance and then I have different widgets underneath that are like unique to content performance that I want to see, but like, I can't change the source data for that widget for that visualization. So it's kind of like you get what you get. Um, but uh, the short answer is you're going to have to use some sort of tool, you know, whatever one I'm sure, I'm sure Jan Burke, you have a bunch of recommendations for tools. <laughs> um, I, I've, I don't have one yet that I'm like, that's the best yet. I have to try more to be honest with you. Um, but outside of tools, uh, it's just for me, it's really just as simple as like self-reported attribution, first touch, last touch, uh, and then just looking at that overall blended pipeline. Yeah. Fair. Uh, fair. And like on the self-report attribution view, uh, like we have been seeing as of good results there, especially on the YouTube side. Uh, in Q1, we have increased the YouTube budget by like uh, 4x, 5x. And obviously, uh, we are not seeing direct convergence coming from YouTube. Uh, okay, the view rates are going uh, better. Uh, we, ca we can see the engagement is getting higher, impressions are getting higher. But one thing actually we noticed and we said, okay, uh, YouTube is working was the answers in the self-report attribution. Like uh, we got like probably 10x, maybe 15x more uh, YouTube answers only in January than we had in the last six months. Nice. Yeah. The, uh, the other thing I would add to on YouTube is you can set up view through conversions. So that's another way to kind of get a sense of, is this traffic doing something? So you can set up view through conversions. It's not, you know, it's not accurate, but directionally, you know, it'll give you an idea. That's another touch point. Um, also just looking at like brand and direct traffic, taking a baseline of like your average search volume for your, your, your brand name and Google trends as well. is like another cool one you can do, but the kind of way I, I think about things as far as like attribution and all this is I first start what it with, what is the question that I need to answer? Right. And like, what will help me make that informed decision? That's where I start. And then I'll think through like reporting and tools to help me answer that. So for example, if I'm a company and everything I care about is account-based and that's like my primary thing, live or die, I'm already thinking, okay, I need a way to understand the companies on my site. So like I could use a tool like Kickfire, for example, uh, and then I can filter my traffic by source to kind of get a sense of like, okay, of the people that are coming from YouTube, what companies are they at? All right. And that could be like one data point. Uh, that's why I love self-report attribution too, because it's kind of like you hear it directly from the source, you know, because all these tools are they're never perfect right like there's always limitations um but oftentimes people i think they they get caught up in the tools and they don't first start by asking what are the questions that i need to solve in order for me to make a collective decision definitely uh and speaking on youtube i also the other channel that uh you've been pretty active on and i'm not gonna lie like i learned youtube as from your videos and when it comes to YouTube and measuring success on YouTube, you already gave a couple of uh, amazing answers. Uh, but how do you actually measure the uh, actual return on investment there? What should be the main success metrics uh, for a com company who is just starting YouTube? Yes. So two things. Uh, one is you can look at it in terms of direct pipe to spend. That's one of my favorite metrics uh, for what you are able to directly attribute. Um, I'm assuming that you're running a direct response ad and you're not just running a branding campaign with YouTube. It's, it's kind of a, a shame to be honest with you to just run brand because you have the ability to drive direct response. And it's kind of like you get brand and action at the same time. Um, but pipe to spend for what you are able to directly attribute, but mostly with YouTube, what I'm looking at as well is on the leading side, I'm looking at click through rate. So I can understand, is this video, is it good? Does it have legs? So baseline that I try to aim for is a CTR of 2% and higher. If you're under 2%, doesn't mean, you know, it's the end of the world, but it means your video can be better and you can go to work on that. Um, I'm also split testing the video as well. So like, I don't, we can make this a whole YouTube podcast, but like I'm testing different hooks within the video, right. And I'm compartmentalizing it. Uh, so that's kind of like the leading side CTR. I'm also looking at view rate. 
of, of my videos as well. Um, but generally speaking, I try to keep my view rate low and my click through rate high, right? Cause you're only charged if somebody watches 30 seconds of your video. So that's kind of like on the front end, if it's account-based and we have an attribution tool, then I'm also looking at like the companies that we're able to identify based on the YouTube source to get another understanding of, you know, are we the quality for this, this campaign? Um, and then on the lagging side, I'm looking at pipe to spend that's able to directly attribute to YouTube. Um, and then I'm just looking at the overall blended and then self-reported attribution. And uh, on the view rate site, uh, do you split the campaigns by device type? Yes and no. So no, not at first, but yes, later on, if the data substantiates it. Um, generally speaking with B2B, desktop outperforms mobile. And I love doing that with search, like just from the get-go, because I've seen it so many times now that I'm like, I know desktop is probably going to do better than mobile. But with YouTube, it can sometimes be a hit or miss, like depending on the industry. Sometimes mobile will actually outperform desktop and, and vice versa. What about TVs? TVs, uh, I so I'll give you a I'll give you a, an inside look of a, an experiment that I'm running. I don't for most companies I don't segment by TV, but one and you can try this at Cognizum. You can steal it, but uh, I'm running the same test probably, and I'm going to give my answer to you. Okay, so for TVs, the 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 experiment that I'm like like dying to try is putting a QR code on the screen. So that somebody could like has to actually like scan it with their phone. So like kind of taking what they did in the Super Bowl, I think it was a Coinbase. Um, so that's that's a test that I want to do on TV. But for the most part, in terms of placement, it's usually desktop mobile. Uh, honestly, we spoke about this. Uh, it was Alice's idea last week, and now we are going to put a QR code to the. Uh, you gotta keep videos. me posted on how that goes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because yeah, we first started with a general campaign. Then uh, okay, the numbers were good, so I, I was like, okay, let's split by device type. Now we are running uh, different campaigns for mobile, TV, and desktop, and surprisingly, the view rate in uh, TVs is better. The CTR in TVs is better. Like we actually got two conversions from a tv and i have no idea how that's wild uh so the view rate, like I, I have no idea the view rate is usually higher on tv and just from like my experience it's because people just let their tv run in the background you know what i mean which is also the challenge with tv sometimes is like you're, you're getting charged for like views that are not people are not necessarily present um but it's very interesting to hear that you got two conversions and I, again, I have no idea. Like, how come can someone convert? And are you guys doing demo? It, it was a direct conversion. Uh, yeah. Wow. Like it was. It was a, like it was a normal video ad, but at mm -hmm. the end of it, uh, I basically wanted to see if like it was a brand campaign uh, for the brand keyword searches, and I was like, okay, we are already running a landing page for this uh, brand searches on PP site, so let me try the same landing page on a YouTube ad, and I, I'm like, how the hell it was possible? <laughs> That's crazy that, I mean, it makes sense, brand custom intent, uh, the challenge, and this is too, where like I had originally started in B2C and I'm thankful because in the B2C world, one of the things I do really well is they're very, like they're always thinking about promotions, like and mm -hmm. deals. And I think on the B2B side, if you really want to scale uh, and the, the advantage of like using channels like YouTube or Twitter is you have wider audiences. So if you can get an offer and a creative that connects and converts, the ability to scale is ridiculous. You know what I mean? Uh, Cause you just have a much bigger audience size. So like, it's very cool to hear that you're getting demo to work right now. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised and again, I though, have no idea how. if you start to hit a wall, like, cause the demo offer just won't match the awareness of the, the audience. Mm -hmm. And then that would be cool where like, if you guys can try like a new offer, like maybe some sort of like free trial of like your data set or like uh, right now I'm testing with my clients because demo isn't working as well. We're testing like an assessment or an audit, um, which is like more in the middle to see if that converts better. Mm -hmm. so this is kind of where like going back to the three biggest levers is like, think of through your experiences, your offers, your creative, just because everybody's doing it that way doesn't mean it's necessarily the way you have to do it, especially right now. So kind of, you know, get outside the box. And uh, you said something interesting, the scalability. And when you said scalability, the first thing I thought was the broad match. Uh, what are your thoughts on broad match and does it work in B2B? My first thought is like, I want to vomit uh, because <laughs> I've just wasted all my money. Uh, my first thought is no one like broad match. 
Broadmatch should let's set some conditions, right? Of when is Broadmatch make sense for you? Okay, number one, you have scaled exact and you have scaled phrase match. That's so that's where you start. You start exact, mm -hmm. then you go phrase, and then finally you can go broad. So like simple example is let's say you're bidding on the keyword CRM software as an exact match, it's working really well for you. You want to drive more volume. Now you go phrase. That's working really well for you. You've built a very strong negative keyword list. Uh, you know it's working well because you've tied it to your pipeline and revenue data. You have offline conversion tracking, ideally. Then finally, the next step is, okay, I'll try broad match, but I'm going to do broad discovery, which is layering uh, using broad match mm -hmm. and some sort of audience filter. So that's kind of the next step that you start at. Uh, and then finally, which 99.99% of my clients never get here, is full broad. You know, where you just like, you let the keyword go wild. I mean, yeah, I never do that. And like all of my Google account managers uh, have been pushing for that. And I'm like, okay, if you push this more, I'm going to fire you. <laughs> and we did actually fire one of them. And we don't have an account major right now. We are in the enterprise segment and we don't have an account major. You heard it here first, uh, Google. Do not, <laughs> do not prospect to Yonberg. <laughs> And also, I know that uh, you recommend having campaigns uh, on the match type. So, like, uh, each match type will have one campaign. Uh, how do you think this would work when it comes to brand campaigns? Like, does it also applicable for the brand campaigns? It's a good question. Uh, for brand, for the most part, no. Brand will just be exact and phrased within the same campaign because it's brand is a lot more defense than it is offense, if you will. The reason mm -hmm. I like to structure it that way for non-brand and competitive is because it, it's kind of serves two purposes. So the exact match campaign, what it does initially is it helps you drive the greatest return because it's the most precise, but also what it does is it helps cover impression share for your most valuable terms. You know, if we were in a room right now, I'd say, how many of you have gotten that question from your manager saying like, why aren't we on the top of the page for this keyword? Like, why are we never showing up? By having that exact match campaign, that covers that base and it guarantees that there's budget being distributed to your most high intent terms so that you are applicable and able to show up on the top of the page. So outside of just efficiency, it also helps with the visibility of your most important terms. That's the reason I do that. Now, the next thing is, okay, we want to scale, right? So that's when I will usually run a campaign experiment against the base campaign or I'll split it 50-50, 50% exact, 50% phrase. Then when I see phrase match works well, I'll break it out into its own campaign because it proved itself to me. And now we'll scale and we'll give it its own budget covering those same root keywords uh, on the phrase match version. So that's kind of why I think about it. And then from there, it's really easy too. If I want to run a broad discovery campaign, I run the same formula, but now I try broad match with an audience. If it proves itself, okay, great. Now you get it. Uh, so that's kind of why I do it the way that in that specific order. And then I've gotten to gun to the point now, like if a, if a client wants to scale, I'll already start with the exact and phrase segmented. And then from there, we'll just iterate off the data. Fair. Uh, it makes complete sense. And uh, yeah, you said when we uh, speak about brand campaigns, we need to think it uh, as a mechanism of defense. And on the opposite side, we have the competitive campaigns. Uh, and you also have like several videos on YouTube about how to run a uh, competitor based, uh, competitor focused campaigns. Uh, what are the common mistakes, uh, that marketers are doing when, uh, they basically launch a competitive campaign? Number one, they're not bidding on keywords that are high intent enough for competitive. So they'll, for example, they'll just bid on, and this is where you have to check your search terms report. But like, for example, it just bid on the name of the company alone with nothing else, which is mm -hmm. fine sometimes as long as you're vigilant on your search terms report. But what often happens is like you're bidding on just the company name, but then you're also eligible to show up for like company name, login, company name, knowledge base, company name, support, company name, crunch base, company name, <laughs> like all these things that are just not relevant. So that's where it can be troublesome. So just make sure you're checking your search terms report if you are doing that. Um, but ideally is you're, you're bidding on the, the name of your competitor and then you're using some sort of modifier. So like company name, alternatives, company name, pricing, company name, reviews, company name versus your company name uh, so that you're really giving Google the right signals. I think, you know, fast forward to Google ads today, mm -hmm. 
the ability to control search terms is becoming less and less possible. I truly will not be surprised if like we have this conversation three years from now and it's like full broad match. Like that my is the direction. My like Major is saying the same thing. Like she's like, they're going to switch to broad match completely. And they're going I to don't do it. It's a thousand percent going to happen. And like, if you read the documentation on how Google describes keywords today, they describe it as signals. So that's how I think about keywords now is keywords are nothing more than signals to inform Google's algorithm on what queries that I'm eligible to show up for. So especially nowadays, it's like you don't scale through keywords anymore. You scale through match types because oftentimes you're bidding on a keyword and then you're trying to cover all these other variations of keywords, but you're still eligible to show up for them based on just the one keyword. And the way you can validate this yourself is if you go to the ad preview and diagnosis tool, put in the query that you would love to show up for and then see if you're eligible based on the results. And it'll show you the keywords that are triggering that query. And you're going to see like three to four of this, like different keywords triggering for the same query because Google is getting broader and broader in terms of how they're doing that matching process. So uh, that's also where the, adding on to that, because I always like to give context in terms of like it depends mm -hmm. situations is if the keyword is like, I call it your money keyword, like life and death, I must show up for this thing, game changer, then yes, take the time to add it to your campaign, even though you might already be eligible to show up for it, just so you guarantee it. Uh, but by and large, nowadays, it's all about match types, and that's how you scale. But I could totally see in the future, it's going to be like pure broad. Um, and then from there, I think it's going to be really important to have some sort of like first party data that you layer on top or some sort of audience filter because that's like our last line of defense. And then assuming that goes away, like, you know, kind of putting on my alien hat here, uh, conspiracy <laughs> theories, if that goes away, then the last, the last line of defense is like feeding good conversion signals into the channel so that we can teach them what quality means. Actually, I think, yeah, as you said, it is coming. Like at some point we will only have the broad match type and hopefully it will, it will take some time, hopefully. Uh, and when we uh, look back, like, what change do you think, uh, what change uh, in digital marketing happened in the last, I don't know, two years, three years? And what are the things that you used to do before and that are not working anymore? Oh, that's a good question. I have to think about it. What was I doing two years ago that no longer works, that, that I'm not doing anymore? Um, I mean, I think one, one is over, over segmentation on social. So before I used to... I mean, I would create these crazy flows in Lucidchart where I'm like, if person does this, then I do that. And like, I would do this hyper segmentation. Um, and it sounds good in theory, but then in practice, it like, you wouldn't get a lot of delivery. You maybe, you would get a re good return in terms of like that micro segment, but then there was no scale. You know what I mean? Um, so before I think I was a lot, yeah, I was a lot more focused in my efforts and I was like two. And I, also I was... Back then, I was way more concerned about like the campaign objectives, the structure, the all the minutia on the campaign side. Um, and nowadays, fast forward to today, I'm much more obsessed about the experience, the creative, and the offers. I would say those are the two big differences because I, I truly believe I can see a world where it's like all that's table stakes, and the only real differentiator is the creative, the experience, the offers. You know, because like you have brands that have the worst targeting ever. The worst setup known to man. <laughs> it's like they're lumping everything together. It's just like garbage, you know? Like we look at it and we get heartburn. But they have amazing creative. They have a great offer and they're driving people to a page that makes sense. And that's that makes the difference. Amazing. Like I couldn't agree more. And uh, final one question we always like to end on. What one thing would you tell marketers to start start stop and continue doing based on what is happening right now in marketing start getting your measurement systems in place fix your infrastructure put yourself in a position to succeed uh really start to think like an investor first understand your economics so going back to the twitter ad example first thing you're doing is a pilot campaign to get your baseline of your costs right uh so think like that execute like a scientist just think what are the questions that I need to answer and then structure your campaigns in a way that will make your life easy to be able to answer those questions. Um, and then in terms of stop, stop leaving creative for the last minute, you know, think of creative. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Think of creative as 
as truly something that will make or break your success, because whether you realize it or not, it is. I kid you not, I've had clients where the only thing I changed was the ad, and it was all the difference in terms of performance. So really start to pay attention to that and treat creative just like you would, you know, like get into a rhythm and a workflow of like every month, you know, you need more creative. Uh, it goes through a review process. You're thinking through conceptually different concepts, et cetera. So you're really pushing yourself. Uh, and then you have a creative dashboard that allows you to report on performance by creative and concept. So then you can start to do some advanced creative analysis. Um, and then what was the, what was the last one? It was start, stop, and and actually before going there, uh, how do you create that dashboard? So there's tools. Uh, I just found about one today, so I can't recommend it yet until I try it. But I'll 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 slack it to you. Um, but outside of that, the way I've done it historically is number one is you need to make sure you you set up the right can like ad names. You need a naming convention on your ads. Um, once you have that, then it's very easy to just pull all that data. You can put into like Google Sheets, and then you can basically summarize all the data, or you can push into like a Looker dashboard. Uh, but basically, what you want to look at is not just the individual ad. You want to look at the accumulation of performance across the ads. Uh, so, for example, like when I name my ads, all of my ads fall into a specific concept. So, for example, like mm -hmm. before and after, or uh, social proof, or like this new one, like artificially generated. Uh, you know, that's like a new concept <laughs> that's emerging. Mm -hmm. But that's part of the naming convention. So then, from there, I can pull all that data, summarize it. It, it baseline is you do this in Excel with a pivot table, <laughs> you know, um, and like you use that as a starting point. And then now you know, like over the accumulation of ads, right? I have like five different before and after concepts running. I can see overall like a theme, just like in Google, non-brand competitive RLSA content, right? My themes, I can see overall before and after is doing better than social proof, all right? Or it's doing better than product mock-up. And then from there, you're able to drill down further if needed to in sense of like copy one versus copy two. So like the, and this goes back to the infrastructure, like how you name things is so important so that it makes your life easier on the reporting side. Yeah, like currently we are doing with GDS, we are doing with Excel, with 12 tables. If any of uh, investors are listening to me, please make it happen. I'm okay to pay that money, but we need that. Like I need to automate this. It's so important. Oh, well. Like That's such a great SaaS tool to build, honestly, like for creative insights. It's, uh, it's, it's needed. Definitely. Uh, thank you uh, for coming today, Silvio. Like it has been an amazing podcast and I'm seriously thinking of selling this as a master course because <laughs> this info cannot be free. Thank you for having me. I'm honored. It was awesome to be here. Uh, you know, if anybody wants to learn more and get connected, feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. And um, I'm actually in the process right now of launching Ad Conversion, which is a digital advertising academy that teaches B2B marketers how to scale paid ads for free, regardless of skill level. And I, you know, I, I have super passionate about advertising, worked at metadata, got to learn a lot in terms of B2B, saw a lot of audit accounts. So I basically want to do what I did with the performance marketing team there on a large scale and give people the knowledge they need to be able to do all these things that we're talking about. Um, and yeah, aiming to launch, uh, beta is actually happening next month. I will definitely hit you up, Jonberg, so you can be in the beta. And then full release, we're yes. planning for around June. Amazing. And yeah. As jump back, I strongly recommend all of the courses uh, that Silvio has. Uh, it's a lifesaver videos, and I cannot recommend him enough. Thank you.